Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, uh, we are starting a new sermon series uh, that will be in through the fall. Uh, We're going to be looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Galatian churches. Uh, What's in your Bible is the letter to to the Galatians. Uh, In this letter, it's one of my uh, favorite uh, of Paul's letters. It's one of the letters that maybe more than any other uh, has been used in the life and history of the church to shape our beliefs about God's grace to shape what it means for us to trust uh, in the gospel of God's pure, unending, unfathomable grace. And so uh, we start uh, this series today with a look at Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. If you're used to those long psalm readings over the summer, that was, uh, that was just a quick stretch of the legs. One day uh, in the year A.D. 47, just 14 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, two men, two Jewish men, uh, uh, stood on a dock in Galatia as they stepped off of a boat. These two men were Paul and Barnabas, his friend. These were Jewish men who'd come to be convinced uh, somewhere in these last years that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, that he was the king, that he was the redeemer, that he was the one that their forefathers and mothers had waited with eager expectation for. And now they went to a strange land. Galatia uh, is named after its connection to the Gauls, uh, residents of Western Europe who had settled uh, in this area. This was a province of the Roman Empire, These were people that the Israelites would look on as people of strange and barbaric customs. And yet Paul and Barnabas were convinced that because Jesus was the Messiah, that the good news was no longer just constrained to Israel, to their ethnic and cultural group, to the keepers of the Israelite law, but that it was going out uh, to strange, funny-talking places like Galatia. And so, in faith, they stepped off of the boat in A.D. 47, and they went first, as was their custom, to the Jewish synagogue in the city of Antioch. And they went there, and uh, as they were allowed to, they began to teach in the synagogue, trusting that among fellow Jews that they would find the first hearing for this incredible message. Thanks to the Apostle Luke, uh, we know from Acts 13 the content of what they preached. It's long, we won't read all, all of it, but it, it's, it can be summed up in this beautiful proclamation. 
Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. They're saying, friends, brothers and sisters, we have good news. We have good news that that as much as you and your fathers and your mothers labored after keeping the law of God, as much as you kept the rite of circumcision and the dietary laws and the moral commandments, as much as you did all of it, you know deep down that it could never set you free. You know deep down that you could never be right enough or moral enough or pure enough. And in Jesus, God has showered his grace on you. And you can now be free to live a life where you know yourself to be loved by God, where you can live a life of love in return. There's no more room for boasting and arrogance in your your lineage as Jews. But there's also no more place for guilt or shame in your life. And so they announced this incredible message, and all the people, it was phenomenal. They asked him to come back the next day and to do it again. And Luke tells us that when they came back, it was no longer just the small Jewish minority that gathered, but Luke actually says the entire city came to hear the message of God's grace. And so some of these Roman citizen citizen Gentiles, who Luke calls God-fearers. This is the word that he'll use for people who are probably monotheists, who believed in the one God, but who weren't a part of Israel, who didn't believe in the Old Testament and its laws. But many of them believed, and Luke tells us that they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and many became Christians. So these Gentile onlookers, these members of cities like Antioch, started to look in, and they could hardly believe what they were saying. They you know, they knew that they, maybe they were saying, you know, we've always been attracted to the God of Israel, to the one true and living God, but it seems so impossible for us to have to go through as adults the rite of circumcision, right? To have to start practicing all of the kosher dietary laws, keeping the Sabbath, following the commandments. It all seems so inaccessible. But now we can hardly believe our ears that he's saying that simply by the act of faith in God's grace in Jesus, We can have access to God. We can have forgiveness of sins. We can be included. Friends, in Galatia in AD 47, grace renewed an entire community. As they caught a hold of God's electrifying grace, everything was changed. Many Jews did believe. Some others also rejected. That became an increasing pattern in the life of the church there. But here in Galatia, they had what God had always promised that there would be one new people of God, defined not by the law, but by his grace, not ethnically or culturally limited just to Israel, but one new Jew-Gentile people of God, people of different ethnicities, different cultures, different uh, backgrounds coming together in one family. It was awe-inspiring. So much of what we talk about longing for as a church was happening there. Right, We define, we talk about our vision, we talk about our longing to see personal transformation by grace, Right, lives changed. We talk about longing to see an uncommon family of faith knit together across socioeconomic and ethnic and cultural lines. And we talk about wanting to see the flourishing of our neighbors. And all of those things were happening there in Galatia. But then something started to happen. The letter that we have before us, uh, the letter to the Galatians, was written in A.D. 50. So that's three years after the founding of the church. Uh, We think it was written in right around A.D. 50. 
So that's three short years from this incredible revival and renewal by grace. And now something else has started to set in in the church, in the Galatian churches. You see, another group of teachers came in behind Paul. And they started to qualify what Paul had preached and what Barnabas had preached. And say, hey, not so fast, guys. God's grace is good, but it's not enough. Right? God's grace is a great way to start, but there's more that's required. This freedom that Paul talked to you about, it's not freedom from the law. In fact, now you do need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. Right? In fact, now you do need to start to keep all of the Jewish dietary laws. Now you do need to keep all of the Jewish high holy days if you're going to be considered truly right with God, if you're going to be truly a part of this church. You need to add to the grace of God all of these other things. Friends, what they did there, what gave, you, you can, on one level you hear that and you go, why would anybody believe that? Right? Why would somebody fall for it? After, after hearing about God's grace, after being uh, given this new life, why would, you, why would you be a sucker for a message that required you to start adding all of this other stuff to it? But friends, it's exactly uh, something that's core to our humanity that started to creep into the Galatian churches. Right, for Jewish believers to believe that grace really had uh, set them free from the demands of the law, required them to let go of some of the markers that they clung to, to give them moral superiority over their neighbors, and we love to feel morally superior to our neighbors, right? That is, human beings don't let go of moral superiority easily, right? We look for some way to feel like, you know what, we're just a little bit better. We're a little bit smarter. We're a little bit wiser. We're a little bit more generous. We're just a little bit better than the average person. Right? It also required them to give up their ethnic and cultural superiority. Right? The Jews were a people who lived for their entire lives as a minority group in Roman culture. And so to give up some of the cultural markers of Judaism took away some of that sense of ethnic superiority that they felt. And as we know, human beings like to feel ethnically and culturally superior to one another. And so the grace of God, that God was no longer keeping score morally and he was not, not looking at one ethnic group over and against another, cut deep for them and required them to give up so much of how they define themselves. And so they started adding these qualifiers to the grace of God. In this, as we'll see as we get into the letter to the Galatians, got Paul all kinds of worked up. Because Paul knew something in this church that he loved, in this church that he planted. He knew that as soon as you add anything to grace, you spoil it entirely. Right? As, long, as soon as you start saying, I'm made right with God by grace and, you lose the grace of God. You cheapen it, you dilute it, and it, you rob it of its power. And Paul had staked his life on establishing these churches rooted in grace this one Jew-Gentile, uh, multinational, multi-ethnic church. And so he writes, Galatians, we think, is his earliest letter, and it's probably his most passionate letter. Paul doesn't do, uh, and if you look at a lot of his epistles, the section that we're reading here in five verses, his greetings, basically. Uh, in some of them, it goes 
you know, almost a whole chapter long. He's just full of greetings. He's full of uh, tell such and such hi. These people say hi. Here he gets right to the point because he is very animated about this. And he starts uh, with them. And in the, in the future weeks, we're going to see him do a lot of work of talking about the counterfeit gospels that have worked their way into the Galatian church. But here he starts out by defining what the true gospel is. That what the gospel is in all of its saving power. And we're going to see that he defines the gospel as a divine action dealing with a deep problem that brings about comprehensive blessing. So it's a divine action dealing with a deep human problem that brings into our lives a comprehensive and abundant blessing. First, it's a divine action. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul uses the language of an apostle. That's simply a sent messenger, someone who's commissioned to go out with a message. And Paul's saying, I'm a messenger, but I'm a messenger not sent by any human beings, right? I'm not sent by the church in Jerusalem. I'm not sent by another church. I'm not sent by one other powerful person. I'm not sent by Peter. I'm not sent by one of the others. I'm sent here to you as an apostle from God himself. You see, what we think had happened was that after Paul moved on from the Galatian region, it was his practice to go and preach, stay for a while, plant a church, and then move on, that some others came along and said, you know what, you're following Paul, but Paul's not even really an apostle, right? You know, we usually use the language of apostle, Uh, to describe the 12 disciples who lived with Jesus, who knew Jesus. And if you know Paul's story, you know that that wasn't his story. He says that he came later as one abnormally born, that he was converted from a life of persecuting the church, that he came to follow Jesus, and then the resurrected Jesus sent him into the mission field. And so one of the ways that people were trying to discredit Paul's message was by trying to uh, discredit his credentials saying he's just, a, he's just a human being. He's just a man with a human message. So you don't have to fool with it. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to invest it with any kind of credibility. You know, we'll still hear this kind of thing. You've probably heard people say, you know what? Jesus had a unique message, maybe even from God himself. Jesus had Christianity in its purest form, but then Paul came along later and crafted a religion around it, built in all these rules and different beliefs about churches and all these things. Right, it's a fairly common uh, thing that you'll hear uh, taught when you're trying to analyze Christianity as one other human religion among many other religions. And yet what Paul says about his apostleship here is really, really important. That his message isn't human words about God. Right? It's not human speech about God. It's God's speech to humans. Right? The world is full of human ideas and thoughts about God. Right, if you go to the local bookstore, uh, if it is still open in your neighborhood, and uh, you go to the local bookstore and you go to the religion and self-help aisle, you will see no end to the books published that are full of man's ideas about God. Our beliefs about him, our thoughts about him, our philosophies around him. Right? If you're evaluating Christianity, it's important to note that Christianity does not claim to be one of many sets of ideas about God. But it claims actually to be God's speech to human beings. God's action in the world of human beings. 
right? That so it doesn't go about human speculation about God, but God entering into our lives, into our world, into our cultures to speak and to act. In fact, that's a very important part of what Christians believe about God, right? That he's not a distant God that leaves us uh, here on our own with our limited abilities to try to figure out what he's like. Well, I think God's like this, or I imagine him being like that, right? No, God is not the kind of God who stands at a distance and waits for us to figure it out or waits for us to learn to ascend towards him through our goodness or through our prayers, but he's the kind of God who wants to be known by us, who wants to be known by us so much that he doesn't stand in an eternal distance, transcendently other, but he actually speaks to us and that we have his words in the Bible. And not only does he speak to us, but that he actually entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ and that he did something for us on our behalf so that we could live our lives with him. Notice uh, the way that Paul describes this God through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right, ultimately Christianity doesn't belong in the category of beliefs or values or feelings. It belongs in the category of claims about history, claims of fact, right? That it's rooted on the belief that a man named Jesus really did die and then three days later really rose from the dead and that those historical realities have consequences not just for his contemporaries, not just for his followers, but for every man, woman, and child uh, in every nation of the earth. And so that is what motivated uh, Paul and Barnabas to go with this message. Not, hey, we've got some neat ideas about God that you should think about, but Jesus rose from the dead. He died for your sins, and he rose to new life. And by faith in him, you too can die to everything that's corrupt and rotting and dying in the world and live into newness of life. Friends, if you believe Uh, that you can attain your way to God, that through your thoughts about him, through your devotion to him, through your actions towards him, that you can somehow undertake a project of self-salvation to attain to his life, you've not yet fully understood uh, just how deep the problem is that you find yourself in, right? If human beings are fundamentally good, just we get it wrong a little bit every once in a while, we have a few errors in our life or our thoughts, Yeah, you can correct that with a little bit of hard work. But if we believe Paul, as we're going to see here in just a minute, our problem is so much deeper than that. We have gotten ourselves into a problem that we cannot get ourselves out of. And so Paul next talks to us about this deep, deep problem. Look at verse 4 when he talks about why Jesus came and died. He says, uh, this Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He describes the world that we're born into, each and every one of us, as this present evil age. One commentator translates uh, this verse rightly, I think, that Christ came to snatch us from the grip of the present evil age. Because Paul's Paul's beliefs about the world, uh, shaped by his reading of the Old Testament, is that life outside of Eden, right, life after the fall, is marked by evil. That we are born into a kind of imprisonment to forces, evil forces that are beyond ourselves. 
and more powerful than ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, I was not here. I was out of town. And that week, uh, it, within a couple of days of each other, we suffered as a nation uh, two mass shootings within a couple of days, within a few hours of one another in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio. Two mass shootings. Which means, of course, that we've spent the last two-plus weeks since those mass shootings dealing with multiple angles and multiple takes from every talking head known, you know, that's on your TV about why things like this happen. Right? Articles are published. Television shows have to have content for the air. And so we get countless explanations for why things like this happen. Right? What somebody will, will offer that what we have is a gun control problem and we need new and better laws. Others will offer, no, no, what we have in America is a mental health crisis. It's, a, it's an emotional and mental problem. What we need is to do a better job of taking care of the psychological needs of people of diagnosing them and of treating them. And then somebody else will say, no, no, what we have here is a racism problem because this was somebody who was motivated by white nationalist ideology. This is somebody who is corrupted by deplorable beliefs. Right? This is a racism problem, and it's as old as America itself. And then others will say, no, no, what we have is a political problem. Right? Because this is somebody who is motivated by a conservative agenda. So is it a gun control problem? Is it a mental health problem? Is it a psychological problem? Paul tells us that we have something that can say yes and to all of those things. That our problem is so naughty and complex because what we have is a present evil age problem. What we have is an evil problem that will take hold of every weakness and every opportunity. It'll take hold of any weapon you can put in its hands. It'll take hold of warped human minds and hearts. It will take hold of, our, of racism. It will take hold of our political polarization. And it will twist it in such a way that it destroys us. So our problem is multifaceted because evil has a thousand faces. That evil is as mutatable as human nature. And that we live in the grip, as Paul tells us here, of a present evil age. It's enough to make you throw your hands up and say, okay, I guess we're just stuck then. right? If our problems are so deep that we can't even agree on what they are, how do we begin to solve them? right? If we can't even diagnose the problems in our corporate life, how do we begin to work towards solutions? Maybe we're just doomed to live out our lives in the midst of this present evil age. Well, uh, before we throw up our hands, it actually gets worse before it gets better. Because Paul doesn't just define our problems as having a present evil age. Notice what else he says. He gave himself up for our sins. Right? So not only do we live in an age that's broken and sinful, but that each of us in our own hearts is broken and sinful. Right? So sin is not an out there problem, it's an in here problem. Right? It's a problem with the human heart. There's a great uh, African-American thinker and public uh, intellectual of the last generation, James Baldwin, put it. James Baldwin wrote, It's always been much easier because it's always seemed much safer to give a name to the evil without than to locate the terror within. Right? It's always been easier and safer to look at the evil on the outside than it is to take an honest look at what he calls the terror within. 
So in Baldwin's case, he was, you know, he was uh, writing about the problems of racism, which are easy to see out there, right, as a societal problem, as a corporate problem, but our prejudices are hard to see when we look inward, when we start to take our own inventory, right? It's much easier to lament uh, what's going on out in the culture than it is to admit our own lust and our own anger and our own greed, our own addictions, our own terrors. It's the thing that happens in every suspense or horror movie, right? I was, as a child of the 90s, Scream was one of the movies that I unfortunately was shown. And there's the moment of terror when they recognize that the phone call is coming from within the house, right? When you realize the killer's not out there, the killer's in here, right? And the church in our history has been good at recognizing the terror that's out there. But there is another level of terror when you realize that the killer is in the house, that he's here and it's in us and it's in our corporate life and it's in our individual hearts, that we cannot bar evil we cannot keep sin, by keeping the culture on the outside, we can't keep sin away because we bring it with us everywhere we go. We wear it like our clothes. Amen. We live in a present evil age. And the height of foolishness is to believe that you can work your way out of a present evil age or the evil that lurks within. Right? There's nothing that drives a human being more crazy than the illusion of agency. Right, The idea that you can work hard enough, that what you want most is within your grasp, and to be told that if you work hard enough, you can get to it, but you just spin your wheels and recognize that you're not making any progress and you're not getting anywhere at all. If there's any uh, human culture that exemplified the present evil age in which we live, surely it was uh, the rise of Nazi Germany. And the Nazis knew this in a particularly evil way. The power of the illusion of agency. The lie that if you work hard enough for us, life will get better for you. If you've ever undertook the sobering and terrible uh, trip of visiting concentration camps, over many, if not all of them, you'll see in the gates uh, three German words, Arbet macht free. Work will make you free. Because it was the peculiar cruelty uh, of these torture masters to not only put people in what they claimed were labor camps, but then to hold out the hope that if you work hard enough, you'll get out. If you work hard enough, freedom uh, awaits you. Whereas they came to recognize, of course, that that was a lie. The lie that you can work yourself out of an evil power that you can work yourself out of an evil imprisonment and an evil slavery. The illusion of hard work and agency was given to amplify uh, the pain and horror in which these people found themselves. This futility uh, is not only written uh, on the doors of those labor camps, but so much of human religion uh, has been twisted by evil with those words, work will make you free. Right? It may as well be written over the doors of many of our churches and temples and cathedrals. Right? That if you work hard enough for God, you can have freedom. If you do enough, labor enough, you can work your way out of the present evil age. This past week uh, was a commemoration. On August the 14th uh, was the anniversary of the death of a man named Maximilian Kolb. 
Uh, if you know anything of Father Max, he was uh, one of countless who died uh, in Auschwitz, one of those camps uh, over whom's gates were written, work will make you free. Father Maximilian found his way there. He was not uh, Jewish. He was a, a, a friar of the Franciscan order living in Poland uh, and a priest laboring uh, in Poland. When the Germans came uh, into Poland, he continued his work as a, as a priest. He refused to acknowledge the right of Nazi rule. Uh, he continued on in his work. He was one of two monks who stayed at his particular monastery. From that monastery, uh, he started a small publishing house uh, right under the thumb of, of Nazi rule, publishing uh, things that sought to expose the corruption of their rule. He also sheltered uh, some 2,000 or more Polish Jews uh, there in that monastery. As the monks left and freed up the rooms, uh, going back to their native countries, he brought in uh, many, many more Polish uh, Jews who were facing persecution. For this, he was eventually imprisoned and sent to Auschwitz, where he uh, refused to stop but continued to act as a priest, serving communion and caring for the lives of the people uh, who were there in that horrible place. This exposed him to increased violence and cruelty. And then on August 14, 1941, German guards selected a group of 10 men for death. And when one of them, Francis, and you'll pardon my pronunciation of this Polish name, uh, Gajalnizek, uh, began to cry out about his wife and his children. He was a man with a family who'd been in prison. Uh, Father Max uh, wanted to take his place. He said, let me go in his place to death. And for whatever reason, the German guards allowed it. And so Father Maximilian Kolb uh, gave his life for Francis Gajanowicz. We'll call him Francis from now on for my <laughs> pronunciation. Francis survived the war long enough to be liberated by the Allies. He was released and reunited with his wife, who'd been sent to a different camp. He lived to see the Catholic Church make Father Maximilian Kolb a saint. He lived long enough and was present when the nation of Israel commemorated Father Maximilian as one of the righteous among the nations. And he's made it his goal and his life's work to tell the story of this man who laid down his life for him in emulation of his Savior. A man who literally gave himself so that he could be liberated from the grip of the present evil age. He knew what it was to be in a place uh, where his work would not free him, where his labor was only hastening his death, and where it took the sacrificial self-giving of another in order to attain to his freedom. And it's for entire life he told that story, and he honored that man, and he testified to what he had been given. Much as Paul tells uh, these Galatian Christians who are at a place where they're beginning to abandon this incredible sacrifice, this incredible good news of salvation by grace alone for other things, Paul says, no, no, you have to remember Jesus who gave himself for the forgiveness of your sins and to rescue you from the grip of this present evil age. Grace and anything else did not get you here, but only the sacrificially earned grace of Jesus. And this delivers for you this incredible benefit. Paul describes it in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This becomes, we say Galatians, we think is Paul's first letter, but this summation, grace to you in peace, becomes Paul's favorite way of greeting the Christian. Grace to you in peace. When he goes to summarize what the gospel has done for them and what it's done for us, the benefits of the gospel, he gives two words. Grace to you in peace. Grace. God's freely given, unearned love and favor in your life. Grace. Grace given to you not because of anything you did, not through your own good works or good ideas or self-righteousness, not because of any of the countless things that you might cling to to make you feel worthy, but sheerly as the gift of his grace. Grace to you. In the gospel is the freedom to not have to wonder where you stand with God anymore. To not have to wonder if you've been good enough, if you've been wise enough, if you've been faithful enough, if you've attended church the right number of times, if you've prayed the right number of prayers, if you've done the right kind of things. Grace to you. Not having to second guess or worry about your standing before God. You can know that you know that you are God's beloved son, beloved daughter, and in you he is pleased, not because of you, not because of your works, but solely because of the grace of Jesus. Grace to you in peace. So if grace uh, had become a fairly standardized Greek greeting, peace was the standard Hebrew greeting, shalom. And what shalom meant, or in the Greek, irene, what it meant uh, to it in its original context, to its original Greek hearers, meant the cessation of war. Right? You would announce peace when the war had stopped. You'd announce peace when there was no more conflict. You'd announce peace when you, it was safe to leave the walls of the city because a peace treaty had been signed. And it always does mean the end of conflict in Paul, right? It means that Jesus has fought the present evil age in himself, and in his resurrection, he's defeated it, right? The victory is here. The conflict has ceased. Peace. But the Hebrew word shalom carries so much more with it. It means not only the absence of fighting. It means not only that the war is over. It means a holistic, comprehensive sense of well-being. Right? Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, famously defined peace in his own ministry that way. Right? That peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Peace means, peace means reconciliation. Peace means not only are you not killing one another, but you're living your lives in harmony with one another. You're loving one another. You're opening your lives to one another in peace, shalom. And so when Paul announces grace and peace, he's telling the Galatians two very important things. Grace, you as an individual, your sins have been taken care of and dealt with. But peace, Jesus has dealt with so much more than your individual guilt. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the evil age has met its end, whether it knows it or not, right? Even though we continue to live out our days in the shadow of evil, we've been liberated by another kingdom. We've been brought into a kingdom marked by peace and well-being under the kingship of Jesus. Grace, your sins are dealt with. Peace, the power of evil is broken in this world and will finally be dealt with forever in Jesus' return. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, there's this beautiful line. Be of sin the double cure. 
Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Right? We need to be cleansed from the guilt of sin, its penalty and its punishment. But we need more than that. We need to be liberated from its power. We need to be liberated from the world that sin has placed us in, where our lives together are marked by sin, by violence, by prejudice. And Jesus Christ has dealt with both of them. This is why Paul can say later on in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? This is the Christian message. That in Jesus' death is our death. Freedom from sin's guilt. And in his resurrection is our resurrection. Freedom from sin's power. Living no longer as slaves of this present evil age, but as citizens of another age, witnessing to his power. Here in the midst of this one. Friends, this is the witness that our world needs to see. Right? The world does not need to see Christians jockeying for power in our present evil age. Right? We don't need to be seen as, as one more voice trying to get our little scrap of the pie under the reign of evil. Right? What they need to hear is us saying that freedom is possible, that another kingdom is breaking into this one that's marked by a different set of values, a different way of love, a different way of life. Death to sin, life in Christ, life in a new kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that in your death, sin and evil and death have also died. That though they continue on in this life and we don't know uh, the fullness of that freedom that we will know at your return. Lord, that the power of sin and shame and guilt and death is broken over us. Lord, help us to die to that old age and to live by the power of your resurrection uh, in the age to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people who live by grace alone, who seek to add nothing, not our own works, not our own pride, not our own arrogance, to the grace uh, that you purchased for us on the cross. Lord, help us to live our lives as those who've been ransomed by another and who live to give you praise and glory and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at christchurchintown.org.